0: After three years of full-time ministry, Jesus had what? Eleven disciples left? What if they had all been like Brandon? Some others might look at the ministry of Jesus. Well, you know, he had more than eleven. I mean, there was a hundred and twenty, and he appeared to some others, and like about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Well, you know, maybe he had three hundred. But if they all turned out to be like Brandon, would we even be talking about Jesus today? Let I me mean, think about it a little bit. What what if Martin Luther King Jr.? I mean, we celebrate you know Martin Luther King Day every January. What if he had only been able to get three hundred people to listen to him? Think we'd have a national holiday named after him? What about Abraham Lincoln? You think we'd have this huge monument? And it really is impressive down in Washington D.C. Would we have this huge monument to him if he could only have gotten three hundred people to vote for him? Interesting thing. And often when we look at this scenario here's jesus he's supposed to be and is the sacrifice for all of sin of for all of humanity for all time he's the only way to the father i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me he's the open door of the gospel and and he dies at the age of 33 with 11 disciples a ragtag group of other followers that may go as high as maybe 300 maybe 120 we don't know exactly and and yet our sense is, is that well he, he's, he chose so well and he, he put himself, if you will, he, he, he developed these guys so much that they were ready to take over and all of the kingdom rested on these 11. That somehow or another it depended upon their character as people. And there's maybe some reality to that. Like if somebody gave you a job to do it's certainly the fulfillment of that job is, is your responsibility, it's your competency, it's your character, it's your commitment, your diligence, your follow-through, all that kind of stuff. But, but there's something unique about the mission of the gospel. And what I want to show you this morning is that it's my conviction that the reason why the gospel succeeded wasn't because of the giftedness, the competency, or the character of the disciples, it rested on the character of the faith that Jesus had implanted in them. And that the long-term impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ rested not on the character of the disciples, but on the character of the faith that he placed within them. And, and, And I want to highlight this this morning because we've been working through a series, you know, about faith. You know, ground zero, getting faith right. I mean, Almost all of us sitting here, maybe all of us this morning, are basing all of our eternal hopes on our faith. And so we've been looking at what really is faith and how can we tell if we have biblical faith and and today I want to look at the character of faith. I mean, we've looked at the nature of faith, the importance of faith, the archetypes of faith, the archetypes of faith we've looked at, you know, the 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 how how it is that the size of our faith matters and those kinds of things and and, and this morning I want to perhaps wrap up. I'm not sure I'm done yet with this series, but this morning I want to talk about the character of faith. And and I want to tell you up front, if you're like me, you're going to find part of this message convicting. But, but I'm not trying to stomp on your toes. That's not my objective this morning. I, what I want to do is to get all of us to have a sense of what does it really mean to have biblical faith, the kind of faith that God intended, and with that to experience the sense of relief, the, the joy, the anticipation, the exhilarance that comes with walking in a real sense of biblical faith. And the text I've chosen for this morning, and I've I got it out there in your sermon outline for you, and I'd love for you to follow along in your Bibles as well, it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've read a portion of this already. And I want to begin with verse 11 and and actually work down through the first verse of chapter 6. You know, these these, uh, chapter divisions and verse divisions were put in literally centuries after these letters were written. And so they didn't always get them in the right place. It's kind of a, you know, there's a lot of clear breakage points, but there's other times where, eh, you know, I think the flow of thought pushes right through the chapter. And, you know, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 984. Again, we're looking at this text this morning to try to get our hands on what is the character of faith, the the kind of faith that produces not only hope for the world, but the kind of faith that produces this hope within us. And again, just, just a little background. This is the second letter that we have between Paul and the Corinthian church. There were probably other letters that went back and forth as far as we can tell. But Paul had a very intimate relationship with this church. He had been their church planter, their first pastor. He developed a real relationship with them. And now after he's left, this other group of teachers have come in, and they've they've really presented themselves as being superior to Paul. So they're chopping him down in order to build himself up. And as they're chopping down Paul, they're also chopping down the credibility of Paul's teaching. And the church is starting to veer off course and go off into a lot of things that are truly spiritually destructive. And so Paul is writing with all the urgency that he can muster. And so we read, pick up in that spirit with verse 11 of chapter 5. It says, Knowing then the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. We are completely open before God. In other words, he's saying God knows exactly our hearts, exactly what we're doing. He knows we're right, sincere. He says, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. He's saying, like, replay the tape. Who were we when we were with you? And does it align up with what we taught? He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. We're giving you a reason to choose right over wrong, the truth over falsehood. By giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. So that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance. Rather than the heart. For if we're out of our mind. It is for God. That's what they were being accused of at times. That Paul was zealous. But there wasn't. But his zealousness didn't necessarily communicate truth. And if we have a sound mind. It is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Since we've reached this conclusion. If one died for all. Then all died. And he died for all. So those who should who live, should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way, even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Now, everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not... No sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive God's grace in vain. What a great prayer for us today, that we would not receive God's grace in vain. Now, one of the reasons why I want to tell you that the future of the gospel wasn't at risk when Jesus left the planet and left it with these 11 disciples and whatever group they could muster. The reason it wasn't at risk is because it didn't depend upon them it depended on the character of the faith that Jesus had brought into the world and planted within them. And, and I want to point out just two aspects of that di- that character today. But like a typical preacher, I'm going to have a bunch of points under each point. So it's really more like eight points, but I'm going to call it two points, okay? You know, and and the first of those is that when we look at biblical faith, the kind of faith that Jesus planted in the hearts of the disciples, the kind of faith that he wants to plant in us, at the heart of it, the core character of that faith is that it's a transforming faith faith changes stuff it changes us you know what's the statement you cannot go with god and stay the same god changes us our faith at its fundamental level is a transforming faith now what i want you get and paul points and says if anyone's in christ he's a new creation he's a new creature you're different The old stuff, it's gone. The new stuff has come. You're changed. You're transformed. Now, I want you to see a couple things about this transformation. And the first thing I want you to see is that transformation is top down. That doesn't mean that I'm talking about it goes from your head to your toes, even though your right foot is usually the last thing to be sanctified. That's the thing that sits on the gas pedal, you know. And, And at least for me, I'm still struggling with sanctification of the right foot. You know, it's almost to the ankle now but not all the way you know that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about top down it comes from heaven into us just a couple of phrases in here that you see look at verse 18 now everything is from God now he's not he's talking to a certain extent about the fact that our planet the air we breathe the blood that tr- punch through our veins all, all that he's talking a little bit but really in context what he's saying is all this stuff about reconciliation, it's all from God. It's all from God. It's a God act. It's not like we somehow get ourselves to a place where we can jump high enough and we just barely reach the bar and we hold on and we kind of crawl up and now God can. It's all from God down. It's a God thing coming down to us. It's a top-down kind of thing. Look at verse 21. It said, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin. On our behalf. Well, who's doing all that stuff? It's God. It's it's a top-down kind of thing. And here's the point, because transformation is a God down to us kind of thing. If we're not being transformed, it means that we haven't really connected with God, because it's not a a man-made thing up. It's a God thing down. You, You understand what I'm saying? And and I think a lot of times, you know, we're what really strikes me is so often I come across folks and, and you're talking to them about you know, their, their faith and their in, in a walk with God and those kinds of things. Well, I go to church and that kind of stuff. And, and, you, and you get down the course and say, well, wh- why do you think God should let you into heaven? And their answer is, well, I try to be a good person. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a top-down kind of experience. It's what changes us. But not only is it a top-down faith. It's also an inside-out type of transformation. And and I want you to get this as well. Growing spiritually is not behavior management. It's not behavior management. It's not like, well, you know, this used to make me mad, but now I still get mad, but I just don't express my anger the same way. You know, I wait till I'm off of myself, and then I cuss out the door instead of cussing the person out. That's, that's, That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about behavior management. We're not talking about becoming more civil. We're talking about a transformation where the old passes away and the new comes. And, and one of the things I'd say is that this top-down type of transformation has a cleansing effect within us. You know, he says, you know, he does not count their trespasses against them anymore. Imagine your life is a big, huge whiteboard, maybe this whole screen, and every single sin that you've ever committed, every category of sin you've ever committed, it's, to, it's like God comes with this huge eraser and he just wipes it clean, and then he gets out the spray bottle and he sprays it and then he wipes it down some more, so not even the old letters can be seen through the, the dust off. I mean, it's wiped perfectly clean, you're, 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 it's brand new, you're cleansed from the inside out, and you know, the thing that, that strikes me is that I thought, well, if we're really experiencing cleansing from God, what would be a symptom of that? And the thing that jumped into my mind, and I think the Spirit was just lay, really laying it on my heart, was that if we are experiencing inner cleansing, the symptom of that is that we're is that we're going to routinely experience victory over sin. Now, let that sink in for a minute. I mean, when you and I are being cleansed on the inside, that means some of our vulnerability points to sins in our lives are getting wiped away are getting cleaned up and when that's happening we are less susceptible to sin and we are experiencing victory over sin in our lives now i'm not saying that you can become sinless that you'll never commit it. I, I don't i you know i don't you know we we move in that direction whatever but the perfection of the saints i think is something that god does at the final day but there is an ongoing growth in our perfection in us and there should be a mark of victory over sin in our lives there should be a victory over lying and over lust, over gluttony and over gossip, over materialism and over maliciousness, over pride and over pornography, over adultery and over anger, over drunkenness and over doubt, over selfishness and of swearing, and let's just go on and on and on. There should be a sense of this cleansing should give us a spirit of, of victory over sin in our lives. It should also recalibrate how we, what we value. It has this recalibrating impact within us. I mean, this whole statement in here, beginning with verse 16, and it, and it really picks up the tone of the whole passage. You know, he says, we, from now on, we, we do not view anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. I mean, it's, what, what Paul's talking about here is, he, Paul is a student of the Word of God. His entire life from when he was the youngest child coming up, he wanted to understand the revelation of God. And he's poured himself into the Scriptures, and he's studied the Old Testament, and he knows it. And along comes this guy by the name of Jesus. And Paul, you know, he's doing the background check. This guy was born in Bethlehem in a manger. He grew up in Nazareth. He's a carpenter. You know, he has no formal religious education. No diplomas on the wall. And look at the guys who follow him. They're not the, the... cream of the crop coming out of the Harvard and Yale theological seminaries of the, of the ancient world. These guys are fishermen. They're just a rabble off of the street. This guy cannot be the Messiah, period. And then Paul, when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he understood that he had it all wrong because he was looking at things from a human perspective. And it has this recalibrating kind of impact on our lives. And, and we often do that. But when, when you and I are experiencing this transformation, that's a part of the character of the faith that God has planted within us, it's like God performs a form of spiritual LASIK surgery on our eyes and our, and our vision gets clear again. And we see what really matters. And the things that dominate our concern and our, our focus at that time isn't you know, how, how, how we're going to pay our bills or put our kids through college or their retirement. And I'm not saying we don't, we're not responsible in those areas, but the thing that governs us, the thing that drives us, the thing that we, we get creative about and, and are focused on are the things like, how prayerful am I? What's the, the impact of my spiritual influence on those who are around me? How can I get more effective in communicating the presence of Christ within me? And it just begins to shift. It's a huge change as this transformation takes place within us. And there's a whole lot more we could say about that, but but I need to move on to the other aspect of the character of faith that I want you to see this morning. And that's it's a confessing character. The character of the faith that Jesus has placed within you has built into it a nature that it wants to be confessed, it wants to be expressed, it wants to be shared, it wants to be given away. It is a confessing faith. Throughout this whole passage of scripture, there's just ongoing this emphasis. This is why the gospel was not at risk when Jesus left the planet with 11 disciples and, and a few other guys that were on there, the 120. That's why the gospel wasn't at risk because the faith that he had planted in the disciples, not only was it, did it have the ability to transform them, but it, the very instincts of this faith were going to lead them to stand on the mountaintops and say, you got to listen because it's a confessing kind of faith. <laughs> look at what Paul Paul says here. He says, he talks about the privilege of of persuasion. He talks about being, says, you know, verse 11, knowing then the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. And he goes on to talk about the fact that they get to be ambassadors for Christ. You know, we, I don't know, I don't think we value ambassadors. The same way. We don't respect them and hold them up the same way they did in the ancient times. I mean, now, you know, with, with, you know, phone contact all over the world and internet access and video conferencing or whatever, you know, the, sometimes the ambassador is just a manager on the ground and all of it's still coming out of Washington representing us all around the world. And maybe that's a good thing, but that wasn't true in the ancient world. When you went as an ambassador to a different nature, nation, everything that they knew about your nation came from you. You were the nation to them. You represented the culture, what you eat, what you wear, how you carry yourself, how you talk, all those kinds of things. You were the nation. When, they were, when an ambassador went out from Rome in the days of Paul, they represented Rome. They were Rome to these people. And there were two different types of ambassadors that went out from Rome. One was an imperial ambassador. This was in areas like, and we see this in in Palestine in the days of Jesus. It was a place of conflict, so there was a garrison station there. They had a military force. They were occupying the land, if you will. And with that, there was an ambassador and a legate who was there, and he was in charge of everything, and he was directly commissioned by the emperor. And he had authority, and that's what we have as ambassadors for Christ. But there were also these senatorial ambassadors, and they had a different role. A lot of times they would follow in after the conquering General. You know, an army would go out from Rome and, and uh, would take, they would take over a nation or a people group or whatever, and, and then the people would want to make peace and they would want to become a part of the Roman Empire. And along would go the Senate ambassadors. And they would represent the Roman Senate and they would work out the peace agreement and set up the new constitution. They basically got to open up the doors of citizenship to the Roman Empire. Paul said, That's what we get to do. Not only do I have the authority of Christ, But we get to walk out and say, you know what? I can tell you how to be a citizen of the kingdom. It's a great thing. He said that's the nature of this faith that God has given us. It's a confessing nature. But there's also a sense of compellingness that comes with it. You know, he says here in verse 11, he talks about the fear of the Lord. You know, I think we have, you know, we used to have this dog, Dakota, and, and praise the Lord, she used to be outside like nine months a year. She never wanted to come in the house. And to me, that's the best kind of dog to have, one that you never see or hear from or don't have to do much with, you know, so you can tell what kind of a pet owner I am, right? But but we got really cold, had enough mercy, and the dog would come in the house, and we often tried to barricade the thing in the basement, but she just had this uncanny ability to get out of anything, you know, and, and sure enough, there'd be a few nights during the year, especially when she was younger, where she would go, she'd come up from the basement, go in the dining room, now it's our family room, and would do her business on the floor and then go back downstairs. So you get up early in the morning, and there's just you're greeted. You know, uh, you know, and, and you know how it is. You grab the dog by the collar. You pull it up the stairs. You stick their nose in it, you go to slap their dog shaking that's not that's not, what, that's not what he means by the fear of the Lord. This is what he means by the fear of the Lord. You have people in your life that you care so much about, it would kill you to disappoint them. That's what he means by the fear of the Lord. The people in your life that you care about, who are depending upon you in maybe some particular area, and it would just crush your heart to let them down. That's what he means by the fear of the Lord. He says, man, I don't want to let God down with sharing my faith with others. And there's a sense of, of urgency that comes with that. And, and for Paul, he says, you know what? If Jesus had to die on the cross for sin, you know what that means? Everybody else is already dead because of their sin. And with it, it created this compulsion for him to share his faith with others, so that he would be guilty of no man's blood. You know, sometimes I don't think we appreciate that urgency. You know, we, we've, we've been praying for a circumstance where um, somebody that we know, they're, 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 um, they have a, a brother-in-law who is, has cancer and needed a bone marrow transplant. As a part of this journey, the sister of this brother-in-law was designated, was, was diagnosed to be the person who was best suited to make this bone marrow donation to him. But somehow or another along the line, it never really registered on her just what was at stake. So the day came for her to make the donation, and she showed up at the hospital three and a half hours late. And they weren't able to complete the extraction the way they needed it to. And the doctors ended up telling this patient that if they're not, I mean, we've got to clear our calendar again tomorrow. And, and if they're not here at 7 o'clock, we're not doing this. You know, and, and it was only after it was really communicated, it became crystal clear to her that this was a matter of life and death for her brother. Did she get there exactly on time? You know, and I think often we, we live our lives with this fog about what's really at stake because we evaluate people from a human perspective. Well, you know, they're doing all right. I mean, they got a nice house. They don't hear any yelling coming out of the windows, and the kids haven't been arrested yet or whatever. I mean, you know, and, and we, so we're just, we don't have that urgency. Paul said, man, listen, if Jesus had to die, everybody's dead. And the mission is urgent. There's this compellingness to this faith that comes without us. And, and I don't know about you, but, but that convicts me because I don't have that sense of urgency near as often as I should. I also want you to notice that inside of this aspect of the confessing nature of our faith, there, there, there's a vicariousness to our faith. You know, we, we, we mock people who try to live their lives through their kids. You know, you go down to the little league field and they're nine years old and they're, you know, whatever. And, and you hear people yelling at the umpire, "That's a bad call, you know, and they're going nuts. And we, we kind of we laugh and joke about that stuff. But, but when we talk about the vicarious nature of our faith, it's really important. Because it's, it's, he says, you know, Paul talks earlier, he says, you know, the, those who, who, who are now alive, what do they, they live for Christ. How is it that God's making his plea to the world? Through us, there's a vicariousness to our faith, it's, and 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 we need to understand that the whole premise of Paul's argument with the Corinthians is that the message and the messenger are connected. The message and the messenger are connected, so we can't just have the the faith out here and then we just kind of be anything. But we are connected as God living through us as the messengers, and that brings life to the message. And I think often in the American church, one of the reasons why we struggle with, with having a sense of spiritual authority and power and presence in our communities is because we have tried to separate the message and the messenger. And we need to understand the vicarious nature of the faith that God has placed within us. Just a, a, a couple of takeaways as we kind of wrap up this message today. Again, the, the, the whole spirit of this thing isn't, isn't to condemn us or to, or to make us feel bad, but for us to understand that this is the faith that Jesus has planted within us. And he's trying to wiggle that seed of faith around to the place where it's the good soil so it can produce 30, 60, 100 fold. But that starts with having the seed and And if you're here this morning and, and you're not convinced that you've been reconciled to God, let me echo the words of Paul coming directly from the heart of God. We plead, we implore with you, be reconciled to God. You know, on the back of your connection cards, those white things we have you fill out every week, there's a place to say, you know, I choose to become a follower of Christ. And if you've never been reconciled to God, if you're not convinced of that this morning, that there's a, really this new creation within you that's seeking to work its way out in your life, and you want that to be your experience, I want you to just take that card. You can check it off. And I don't want you to put it in the offering plate. When it, I want you to keep it with me, and you give it to me out in the lobby. Have one guy come by and do that on his way out in the, from the first service this morning. If you're not sure that you've been reconciled to God, take that step this morning. It's a powerful thing to do. The second thing is I want all of us to appreciate today. Those of us who can say, I've been reconciled to God, to understand that the way that God changes the world through us Is not by methods, but it's by the character of faith that transforms us and causes us to confess our Christ to a lost world. Let's pray together. You know, Father, I don't know why, but in these moments you're bringing a, a song to mind. I don't even remember all the words. But I know it talks about losing our resolve to be different somewhere between the altar and the door. I think many of us this morning have heard a challenge from you. And and, and the thing that's running through our minds and hearts right now is this stuff I got to do to get this right. God, don't let that resolve, dissolve before real transformation that leads to confession takes place in us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.